Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dodds. Uh, like Brandon said, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, continuing uh, our sermon series in Matthew uh, this morning, we have been following the church calendar, uh, which is something that the church has been doing for centuries, where they uh, divide the year into different seasons, and in different seasons study different aspects of Christ. And so currently, we're in the season of Epiphany, where we look at the teachings of Christ and his life on earth, and we find ourselves today in chapter 12 of Matthew. Um, life is busy. Has no one told you that yet? Because if that's a big bomb drop, I'm sorry. Um, I don't think it's shocking. Um, Bonnie McKernan, maybe some of you have uh, heard of her before, is a, a wife and mother and writer. She wrote something uh, this last year that I'd love to share with you. Uh, she writes this. Every so often, my head hits the pillow and I curl into a fetal position, trying not to hyperventilate at the realization that in not nearly enough hours, this finish line will become the starting line, and I'll have to tackle life all over again. I wonder how I got here, the chaos, the mess, the failing, and I strategize how to make tomorrow better. This is just a season, it will pass, but is it, and will it? I suppose the seasons have been different, whether it was adolescence or insecurity or exams, finances, breakups, stressful jobs or moves or pregnancies or anxiety or babies or hard relationships or traveling or sickness or parenting or just sheer exhaustion. But so often it's just one thing replacing another thing, another fire to put out, another mountain to climb, and as a doer and a fixer, the to-do list is never-ending, and there's always something to prove or put back together. I can do this. Just tweak the schedule, get up a little earlier, simplify, reorganize, streamline, plan better, focus, pare down, clear out, divide and conquer. Tomorrow will be better. I'll sleep more this weekend. I'll slow down next week. Just waiting for summer. It gets easier when they're older. Gosh, I'm exhausted. How do you guys feel? Um, it's only been a few minutes. Um, but we're always going. I think we feel it in here. And honestly, as I'm reading off that list, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of everyone I know uh, at Sojourn and, and thinking, yeah, like all that's cooking here. All that's happening here. But we're always going just as much with our bodies as we are with our heads and our hearts. We've got to work to do, and we have plenty to worry about and think through. But in the middle of all this work, to earn, to secure, to accomplish, to have, to reach, to experience, we're asking Bonnie's question. When will rest come? Is rest possible? Perhaps we're waiting with the thought that at some point we'll be satiated. Maybe we're looking around the room right now. Maybe, maybe we're noticing the older couples and we're like, there's rest, retirement, empty nest. <laughs> Go talk to them, they'll tell you it's a lie. They're waiting on rest too. Or maybe you see someone who's newly married or someone who's single and has the freedom to sleep in, someone who doesn't have a new baby. Or you see someone who has a new baby and you think, there's the life. Go and talk to one another. And you'll find that everyone is waiting on rest. When will it come? 
The Bible says that God wanted us to enjoy rest. And so he gave us this beautiful thing and he called it the Sabbath. It was a gift, an invitation to rest from work and to enjoy peace and delight. And it was a taste of what heaven would be like. Do you see that? Matthew wants us to see today that the Pharisees didn't see that. Matthew remembers this story where the Pharisees accused Jesus, Jesus of ignoring the Sabbath. So let's pick up in verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Maybe in our language, in our church language, your disciples are doing what's unbiblical. So the story opens with Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisees taking a, not an actual Sunday stroll, but a Sunday stroll if you, through a farmer's field. The disciples are hungry, so they pluck some grain kernels and they eat them, and the Pharisees pounce. Why? This is probably difficult for us to understand completely because there is so much at work within the Pharisees and within the Jewish community. They're, they're thinking about their history. They're thinking about what sets them apart from other people. And the Sabbath most certainly was one of those things. This is ours. Not only is it ours, it's who we are. It's part of who we are. It's part of what sets us apart from everyone else. And the reason why the Pharisees had such a strict eye on any violation of God's law was because they had a passion for carrying out works rather than receiving God's mercy. Instead of enjoying what God freely provided, they were attempting to earn everything through work. So when God gave them the gift of the Sabbath, he was saying to them, I want you to trust that I will provide everything you need for life. And their response to that gift here is, we would rather work than rest. We would rather earn than trust. Do you see, do you see what's going on? The Pharisees are working themselves to death to take credit for something that should have only been received. And they want the disciples to work themselves into that same frenzy. They don't want God's free gift of rest. rest. They want to prove themselves. It will come as no surprise to hear that our culture is geared towards workaholism. We really are in quite a time of history because we derive so much personal worth through what we do. In this individualistic culture, it makes all the sense in the world that we would. Judith um, Chulevitz, who is another writer, described work in our culture this way. She said, there is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help, we can't help admiring workaholics. And perhaps we hear this and we say that time off from work will fix our trouble, but I think we find that when we only cease from working, that we discover we're still working. We can't slow down because this continues to go and this continues to go, even when all we do is just stop working. 
our feelings, our worries, our fears, our anxieties, which means that our problem is much deeper than just work. There resides in every one of us a deep-seated need to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, our competency to any audience, to each other, to ourselves, to God. And because we're never sure if we're fully competent, we're never sure if we're fully accepted, we're never sure if it's enough, so we never stop working. And it all becomes overwhelmingly weary. When you're working really hard and you're still sure that it's not enough, that absolutely undoes you. And we could take a month off work, we can go on a vacation, get a promotion, get alone, get around friends, spend all of our time with our kids, go out every week on a date with our spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, but it doesn't drown out the inner dialogue. Have, has it been enough? Am I enough? Have I proven myself? And no amount of rest seems to be able to get to that depth. Do you remember the movie Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe is playing. <laughs> we have a huge fan in the front row. Um, <laughs> check underneath your seat. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Do you remember? I'm really sorry. Do you remember the movie A Beautiful Mind? So Russell Crowe is playing John Nash, who's a mathematician. And he says at one point, I have to have an original idea. I have to be able to see through to find the governing dynamics. That's the only way I'll ever know that I matter. It's the only way I'll know that I matter. We all have that working within us. What's the only way that you'll ever matter? Can you answer that question? Maybe take some time to think about that. It's a scary question and yet such a vital question because it tells us what we're really working for and why we're working for it. How are you trying to prove yourself to others? How are you trying to prove yourself to yourself? And I'll tell you, whatever stops you from being able to prove yourself will get your anger. And it, sometimes it'll be you. It'll be someone else. It'll even be God himself. These issues are all deep within us, and it points to our deep need for soul rest, the kind of rest that a thousand vacations will not even touch. It's why Sabbath rest is what we truly need. So the Pharisees have brought their accusation and Jesus sends a volley back, but in the most interesting way because he challenges their own understanding of what they knew best, which was God's word. So verse three and four, let's look at that. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus pulls this story in his first sort of 
question challenge, he pulls this story from the first book of Samuel in the 21st chapter, which recounts the story of David, who was at the time running away from Saul because Saul had actually, Saul was grooming David and yet had become very jealous of David, so jealous that he wanted to kill him. And so David runs, he brings a group with him, and he runs and comes to the temple in a place called Nob where Ahimelech was the high priest. And in the temple, in this holy place where the presence of God was, there was this offering of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. But Ahimelech gives David and his companions the bread, and they eat it without any charge from God on the matter. We see that Jesus is pointing out something in particular, that their hunger superseded the ceremonial and Sabbath law. We're getting a picture of the God who says that he desires mercy more than sacrifice. So Jesus is drawing the Pharisees' attention and our attention because nowhere in Scripture, this is, we have to make this distinction, this is very important, nowhere in Scripture does God suspend the moral law. He never says, you know that whole thing about adultery? Yeah, in certain situations, you don't really have to pay attention to that. Or stealing or murder, you don't have to, you don't have to pay attention to those things in these special cases. No, he never does that. But here, Jesus does point out that in some circumstances, the Sabbath law can be set aside because it is actually a shadow of something greater. Jesus says, because I, the Son of Man, am Lord of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath laws point to me. They're about me. They're fulfilled in me. You see, Jesus is the true high priest. He is the true temple where the presence of God completely manifests. He is the true Sabbath, the rest of God come for us. He is the true bread, the bread of life that sustains and satisfies. And he says to us, he says to the Pharisees, do you want deep soul rest? You want it, but you're trying to find it through overworking and rule-following or through no working and rebellion. And I'm trying to set you free from both by telling you that rest is found in me. So how do we do that? We have to go back. We have to go back to where everything started in Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, we see the first picture of Sabbath. In the book of Genesis, we see that God, he creates for six days, and on the, on the sixth day, he creates man, and then on the seventh day, God rests. Of course, not because he's tired, but because his work is finished. So imagine, imagine this, Adam opening up his new eyes on the seventh day when God was resting in his finished work And Adam's first full day was a day of rest and enjoyment of God's work, not his own. The God of the Bible is the only God who gives rest before he commands work. Every other God in a sacred text offers rest if the work that is done is acceptable. 
Adam woke up to the sound of God's echoed refrain over all creation. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. This is what it means to rest. This is what it means to Sabbath, to take total satisfaction in the finished work of God. It's the only way that we can stop working to prove anything. It's the only way that we have to look at God's good and perfect finished work and enjoy it in such a way that it frees us to work without needing to work for our worth or for our acceptance. And that's its significance. Listen to this. Our work finds its identity in the reality that God's work is already finished. Jesus is saying through me, Lord of rest, Lord of everything, Lord of the temple, you can be freed to see that no more work needs to be done. All the work that needed to be done is finished in me. And when he claims that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming to be one with the one who gave the Sabbath. He is claiming deity. I am God. And it's Jesus who says this in the, in the chapter before. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, be honest. You are all laboring and feeling heaviness of your work. You're feeling the heaviness of your desire and your push to prove yourself competent to others and to yourself. You're trying to prove who you are through what you do, and that yoke is crushing because it's never enough. It's only when you see me as the meaning in your life, as the meaning of your life, that you will really rest. How is it possible? How is it possible for that to be real to us? It's when we see that on the cross, Jesus bore all of our restless toil. He bore all of our shame, all of our guilt, all our fear, all our inability to prove ourselves and all our attempts to put God and others in our debt through our work. He bore all of that. He took all of that on himself. God took his son who did not know sin and made him sin so that we might become his righteousness in Christ. He lived the perfect life and completely proved himself to the Father, but he didn't get the Sabbath rest as the reward. On the cross, Jesus experienced the complete loss of rest. He was losing the infinite rest that he knew with God the Father so that as the Father turned away from him, that he would turn towards us. See, Jesus gave up his own rest so that we would only know the forever rest of the Father. And as he died, he said, it is finished. You don't have to prove yourself to him anymore. 
Jesus has already done that, and his gift is to share with you the satisfaction of the Father so that those who claim him now can be looked upon by the Father in the same way that he looks at creation and at Jesus and says, it is good. In Christ, we now have the loving gaze of a satisfied father. And we're able to say, I am resting in his finished work. In his finished work. I'm no longer trying to rest in my ongoing work. So now, so how do we live this out? <clears throat> I did have a slide for this, but as I was reading through it, I thought, some of these are a little bit too short and they may scare you, so I'm just gonna read. I think it'll be a lot better in the explanation, so how do we live this out? First and foremost, this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few things. Number one, it means that we should regularly reflect upon and enjoy the rest that he has given. We should have a day a day and a half where we intentionally set aside to bask in worship and delight in the finished work of Jesus, the satisfaction of the Father in that finished work, and now us receiving all of the blessings of the work that Christ essentially counts to us, that we share in that to bask, to take time to bask in that, to thank him for that, to receive that merciful gift over and over by ceasing our own work and saying, my work is not my life. Christ is my life. My work isn't holding my life together. Christ is holding everything together. Which means we should ask some straightforward questions. Can you say no to work even when it needs to get done? To whom or to what can you not seem to say no? How do you use yes and no in your life? What are you trying to earn? What are you trying to prove? If it's hard for you to say no, you may have an ongoing allegiance to something else. Are you trying to manage your insecurity? Are you trying to manage your image or your career or your worry? Because you're not defined by any of those. You are defined by Christ. Number two, the most consistent refrain from God throughout Scripture is this, do not be afraid, I am with you. And I think that points us to two things, trust and identity. We can trust that he is with us and that he is God and we are not. If we don't know that, if we don't know that he is God, that he is with us, and that he is God and we are not, we will begin to think that he's uninvolved and we will try to take our lives into our own hands and play the role of God, which will put us back into the overworked soul treadmill, and we lose our rest. We must say to ourselves and to one another, he is with me, 
He is with you. I don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. He is God. You do not have to be. He is God. I don't have to be. One that is greater than the temple is here. Number three, here's something that sounds funny, but I do think that it's helpful, especially if you're type A and very driven. In Matthew 6, Jesus is talking to the disciples about worry and anxiety, but he gives a very curious directive. He talks about how we can't worry about what we're going to eat tomorrow, what we're going to drink tomorrow, what we're going to wear. But he says, look at the flowers. You're worried? You're anxious? Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. Consider them and reflect on the Father's care for you. Some of us in this room, we need to go on a slow 30-minute walk alone every day and look at the trees and look at the birds and look at the flowers the things that we walk past and ignore all the time and take into deep consideration that God has not ignored them. He has not ignored any blade of grass. He is Lord of every bird. He's Lord of every daffodil. He is Lord over it all. He has you, and you need to make room to remember that and rest. Number four, some of you have busy seasons at work or work is just always busy. And you're saying, maybe even right now, there's no time for Sabbath. You need to make time. This is about liberation from slavery. You are not your job. Your career may suffer, but that will be okay. It may not suffer, and that will be okay. But if your love for an enjoyment of God cannot flourish, it will mess your life up. It will. If you have a task list that just keeps growing, maybe you love them or they're running your life. I'll just tell you this. Cut your task list in half and throw one part of it away. I'll let you have the control over which part you throw away. For those of you similarly driven, maybe using Wonderlist, I would say the same thing. And if that freaks you out, you can schedule an appointment with me and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Finally, as it comes to parishes, I think it's good for us to consider the words from the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When God spoke this, he was saying something about the priority of his desires. He was saying, when it comes to my heart, when it comes to what I want, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. This speaks to the complexity of God's nature that he desires some things more than others. He has a hierarchy of desires. But this is what I want to touch on specifically as we close. Perhaps our parishes could be places where those most unlike us would be welcomed in 
where they could experience for the first time the rest and mercy offered by Christ. And let me, let me make it just a little bit more on the ground. Sometimes because of my background, of where I grew up, the schools that I went to, being part of certain social circles in Houston, it gives me the opportunity in my heart of hearts to look down on others because they're not like me and they didn't have the same experiences and they didn't make good choices and they didn't have good educations. And like, just like the Pharisees looked down on the disciples, you're picking grain on the Sabbath? How unwholesome and wrong are you? I can think more about who's breaking my law and why they're not supposed to be invited in. But I, in that I can forget that Jesus, the one most unlike me, became like me and invited me in so that I could become like him. He was merciful. So maybe our parishes, we could do this. We could be merciful too, rest in his provision, and invite everyone in to experience his mercy that endures forever. And one day, we'll know it in full, and we will rest eternally with him, and we can practice in part what eternity looks like today. Let me pray for us. And Father, the Sabbath reminds us of your rest after creation. It reminds us of our Savior, Jesus, who rose from death to offer everlasting life. It reminds us of the rest for our soul that Christ provides, and it reminds us of the great rest that awaits us when we see you again face to face where we will delight in you and be forever refreshed by you. Lord, make us a people who rejoice in Sabbath, a people who marvel at your finished work, a people who will gladly cease our own work to glory and stand in wonder in the light of your perfect work. Our work earns us nothing. We are bankrupt at best. It is your work that has earned everything. And perhaps, Lord, to the degree we believe that, let us believe that, we will no longer try to rest in our ongoing work but in your finished work. Please help us to rest in you, Father, that that is our most honest prayer today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.